Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Homo Sapiens listeners. I'm just jumping on here. Did you hear me jump? To tell you that we have exciting news. If you want to listen to Homo Sapiens without the ads, now you can. You can subscribe to Homo Sapiens Plus on Apple Podcasts and all future episodes will be ad free. How do you sign up? Well, go inside your Apple Podcasts app. Go to our Homo Sapiens homepage and the option to subscribe to Homo Sapiens Plus for £1.49 a month is there. There's also BT Dubs, a seven-day free trial available, so you can try before you buy, which is my favourite. I like to do that in the supermarket whenever they've got a little snack being handed out. Anyway, I digress. This is part two of our lovely chat with Mark Thompson of Black and Gay Back in the Day. You've got to listen to part one first. That's available on the feed. If you haven't, go fill your boots. And if you have, here is part two. I remember you saying once a very interesting lineage of being someone with HIV. The way you explained it from then to now is so radically different. So I, I think I, what I was talking about was the evolution for me around talking about my HIV, being open about it, and, and, and also disclosing and telling partners about yeah. it. And I think that what I was saying is that when I was first diagnosed, it was a shameful, big secret. And if I did tell you, I felt it was my moral duty to tell you this. You had a right to know. Mm. And as the years have progressed, I have evolved along with the virus where I've gone from, from that position to one where, oh, I should tell you because I want you to know something about me because I love you. We're going to be intimate through to... I tell you because I get from this what I need, you get from it what you need, to a point today where I don't have to tell you at all, which is ironic, given that I'm completely out now about my status and (laughs) anybody could just find out. So it's it's an interesting position to be in. (laughs) They tell you now. I mean, pretty much. (laughs) Do Tell me a bit about what it was like to be a, a young gay black man and services for those young gay black men with AIDS at that time? I mean, I think, you know, first of all, the, the, there were services available for people who, who, who had HIV or might develop full-blown AIDS at the time. So there was stuff available. It wasn't always great, mm. but the community came together and they created that. But I think that if you were young, black and gay at the time, you had the added issues around having HIV and race, you know, because you may be less likely to be out to your family or to your friends. So there's that shame already attached to it. 
And then when you go into these spaces, your cultural or your community needs were not being addressed or thought about because there's this monolithic idea about what gay is. So it's like, you're, you're gay, that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. So there was no real understanding of actually the reason, this stigma that you're experiencing impacts me really, really differently, right? So there was, there was that. And so I do know that there were many black gay men at that time who, like there were many gay men, but many black gay men who slinked off into the night and died in silence or mm. only could rely on the support of other black gay people to help them through because they didn't understand about navigating the services. Those services weren't reaching out to them. My own experience was that, first of all, I never got ill, so I never needed that kind of additional support, but I did need emotional support. I did need, com- I did need to connect with community, and by that, I need to connect with other people with HIV. So when I would go to support services, I would very often be the only black person there and almost certainly the youngest and very often the only person who wasn't unwell. So I would just feel completely isolated in those spaces and sometimes we just never go back because who are you? I don't fit in here. Now, it's not to say I was made to feel unwelcome, but I didn't feel welcomed. Yes. Yeah. Makes complete sense. Did you find that it became clear to you that you were going to have to do something about that? I'm thinking about your journey into activism. I think it wasn't like a light bulb moment. I didn't go, oh, I should fix this. It was more a case of other people also recognising there was a need, seeing me as this kind of young, bright, kind of vivacious person that was out there. Yeah. Then saying, we're, we're doing this, do you want to be involved in it? And me going, actually, this makes perfect sense. But I think my other motivation, Chris, was because of the stigma that I was facing, because of the world that I was living in, I wanted people to be educated. And I knew that if I could educate other black men, primarily, they would probably stop stigmatising me and people like Interesting, because I wondered if the activism felt like it was in order to educate white people on what they were missing out on in their services type thing, or if it was about trying to raise up the black community and, you know, try and help what you were seeing as people, you know, like you say, slinking off into the night and despairing. I mean, my, my, I mean, that's a really great question, a fantastic observation. My work has always been informed primarily by meeting the needs of black gay men, right? right? So that, that's, my primary, that's my primary line. And as, as I have grown and developed and as I have moved up the food chain in terms of my work and I've taken more senior positions... You can say it, Mark, national treasure. <laughs> <laughs> First time I've been called that, so thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, but as I started to take up more positions... I started to then go, actually, I have a seat at these tables. So I have the ear of particular people. So therefore, I can really start telling people this is where not just black gay men, but queer communities of colour should be heard. Mm, mm, mm. And So I think when I look back at my career and what I've achieved, one of the things I'm really proud of is that because of my work and the work of others, that 
those conversations happen and we are included. So people talk about race now, they talk about intersectionality, they talk about the needs of queer migrant men because of the work that we started in 1992. Amazing. Could, so that's paid off. Yeah, cause, uh, and it, you're making me think of one of the um, brilliant pictures on the Instagram account is of one of your friends called Ms. Andrew Gold. Yeah, and so I'll just read from the caption, then we can work out which bits I'm getting wrong. But it's it's someone who you say this person is wearing like a a bra and would probably now identify in the non-binary trans space, but back then it was drag. Would you mm. say? And you know that nuance that has come about in recent years is really it's it's beautiful and wonderful that finally we're getting a bit of traction and light on on this stuff but at the, but then i think about their medical requirements you know of these details which it you know health services are not as good with and we've talked about a lot on this podcast about well, how do you feel when you go to the nhs for stuff and i know they're tr- i know the nhs are trying really hard it's not for lack of trying of those people on the ground you know what i mean but do you feel like that's now your work is like illuminating that stuff as more or as much? Yeah, I mean, my work has expanded and it is about looking at health inequity and access for our diverse communities. And that includes all of us. You know, I, I have a phrase, if one of us is unwell, then we are all unwell. Mm-hmm. So we should collectively be working towards that. I will always, you know, put men like myself at the front and at the core of what I do. And the reason I do that is because we're at the bottom of the battle. So I know if we start to win, then we all start to win. Mm. But I'm really, I mean, I'm really sad that the situation is what it is for non-binary people and trans communities. But in some ways, it's an opportunity for us to make even more noise, for our activism to get louder, to push more because the needs are being amplified constantly, mm. you know? So it was 10, 15 years ago, I was just talking about, you know, the needs of black gay men. Well, actually today, I have to talk about the needs of queer migrant men who have just arrived, who don't speak English, and those within that intersection who may be trans men, you know? So my, 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 my pot continues to grow. Yeah. Can we talk about Prepster? Because it's such a landmark in your career. Just, yeah. you know, just, just tell me... For those, anyone who doesn't know what it is, tell me what it is, you know, what how it started. So Prepster is probably, probably best described as initially as a community movement, which had the aim of educating and agitating for prep access. And it was started by myself, Will Nutland, Charlie Witzel and Richard Kawaji in 2015. And we started it because, quite simply, we were being asked by colleagues in the health service, but also our community for information mm. about this new drug prep. And Will and I had worked together for 20 years and these new young guys had come in and said, like, we need to do something. And we didn't plan to stick around. You know, we, we were both working. We were both had busy lives. And we said, we'll put out a leaflet and we'll carry on with our lives. And here we are, seven, we literally just marked our seventh birthday. Amazing. And here we are seven years later, prep is available which is brilliant. So we won that. Mm-hmm. But we also know that there are still huge access issues around PrEP. But what we're doing now is still trying to fight to make sure that there's a continuation of PrEP provision, that people who are new and want to start PrEP, because we have to remember people are always coming out. Yeah. They're always arriving. 
and we've got really poor sex and relationships education. A lot of young queer men and trans people are getting their information from the internet, from really bad sources sometimes. So we need to continue to put our foot on the pedal to make sure that those people have the right information. Mm. We know that men whose first language isn't English or who migrated to this country still have really high sexual health needs and they may not understand PrEP and they're still getting HIV. So we need to continue. This is a rolling program. It will never end as long as we have poor sexual health, poor sexual relationships, education, and underfunded sexual health services, our work will always be necessary and Prepster will continue to deliver that information. Mm. And it's important to say, I know you, you said it there, but to highlight that it was because of you that it's available, PrEP is available on the NHS, right? Us and lots of colleagues, <laughs> you know. Mark, claim it for yourself. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Everyone else was, was, was you know what, just holding me back. They were sitting at home, right? And I was there. <laughs> 
responded really quickly. We saw that in the really early days of monkeypox, that people were out there sharing information, challenging misinformation, mm. getting vaccinated and demanding vaccine, which was really, really important. The organisations and the bodies like THT, Prepster and National Age Trust all came together and again worked really hard to hold the UK government's feet to the fire to say we need a response to this and we continue to do so. But I think once again, what monkeypox or the monkeypox virus has highlighted is health inequity. You know, so we've seen who got vaccinated really early on, you know, and it's great that those guys did, but there are still gaps. Younger men, queer men of colour, migrant men were the last to get the vaccine and take it up. So we have to do more work to make sure that that stuff is accessible. Mm. And forgive me if it's a really stupid question, but what are the specifics around why they were the last people to take it up? I think what happened is that, you know, when the monkeypox vaccine was first promoted, it was like, come along to these super vax events. It's going to be at your clinic and it's going to be on a Saturday, Sunday morning and join this massive queue, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're not working at the weekend, if you're a single gay man, if you live in the heart of London, if you can afford the, the time, the money and the resource to get there, you can stand in the queue for four hours. If you're young, if you live at home, if you're a student, if you have insecure migration status, if you have a different gender identity, you know, if you think the monkeypox isn't part of your community yet, these are all the factors which are going to prevent you from going and getting the vaccine. When we worked with a local NHS trust in East London to procure vaccine and said, right, we are going to go directly to where black and brown men are. So we did two pop-up events one for Southeast Asian men and one at UK Black Pride, we were flooded by people Mm. because they were like, oh my gosh, this is available. I can get it now. I don't have to queue. My parents aren't going to find out. I'm not going to be on Sky News pictured in this queue. So we have to go to where people are sometimes. Yeah, fantastic. Just linking what we were talking about earlier about nightlife and thinking about prep and where HIV is at now and U equals U that we speak about a lot on this podcast. What do you think that's done to queer nightlife? I don't know, there's uh, even, you know, my youth, there was this horrendous kind of sombre, which was a hangover from because I didn't live through the HIV, like the heavy bit, if you know what I mean. That's the worst word Mm. in the world to use. But um, that kind of ominous sense of danger which perhaps isn't there anymore would that be reductive for me to say that but what do you think it's done to nightlife you know i mean i, you know, I always preface this to say i'm 53 and i don't go out <laughs> so i'm not really sure and i'm not in the apps and me and neither so we'll we'll be the worst two people to get to the bottom of this basically right but what i do observe is i i i, I do genuinely believe that we have a generation who are much more sex positive, who are liberated in some ways from the shackles that we have grown up Mm. with, right? So I'm a generation who grew up through the epidemic, came up, there's a generation below me that's at the tail end of that epidemic, men in their 30s and uh, late 30s and early 30s who kind of know it. They came out before PrEP, they came out before U equals U, so it still sits there in their head. And also they are the victims of clause 28. So there's these things combined. 
So there's still that. But I do see younger generation coming up who know about PrEP, know about HIV testing, know about screening, all of these things. And so they're much more sex positive and they're much more liberated and free. Mm. My concern, though, is goes back to what I said. We cannot take our foot off the pedal because we need to continue to inform those groups that you can get STIs, you should get tested frequently. This is what PrEP means. This is what U equals U means. Because the minute we take our eye off the ball, we start to see these things rise again. Mm. So I think it's always about having sex positive, reassuring, correct information for those guys to use. Mm. And, uh, you know, thinking back to your own history of going out and black and gay back in the day, being an Instagram account, but now it's a podcast, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody go rate and subscribe, tell your friends. Tell me a bit about that. Well, the podcast is really exciting. Um, I produced it with Shivani Darve and Tash Walker of um, Aunt Nell Productions. And we, I mean, it builds on the Instagram page. And people have always asked me, what's next for Black and Gay back in the day? And there are so many things that we wanted to do with it. But Jason and I's time was quite limited. And so the whole idea is to take it to another level, but to dive deeper into a handful of stories that accompany those those pictures well i think what's really exciting about it is we're doing we're creating an intergenerational conversation so a young person who is has a connection to the picture either through their work their art or their career or their life experience then goes on the journey to meet the older person to understand their life their journey but also the wider social context of the picture and then they trot back and they have a little chat with me and say, this is what I've learned. And this is what's different. And this is what's inspired me. Mm. And I think that what's already come out for me is the importance of these intergenerational conversations, because we don't have them at all. You know, there isn't very much space created for them. And I think that when I look at our history, regardless of our ethnic background, our queer history in this country is wonderful and it's rich. But I know so many young people don't know the nuances. They know the big names, but they don't know the small stuff. They don't know what it was like to sniff poppers at the back of heaven in 1986. They don't know what it was like to go cottaging in a really crappy place somewhere. You know? And I want to know about Ian McKellen and I want to know about the, the march on, you know, against Clause 28. That's lovely. I can, I can pick that up at the news. Mm. I want to know what happened when you came off the party, the march. Who did you snog? Who did you fight with? <laughs> you know, who did you fall in love with? Because that's really interesting. That's so interesting. It was reminding me of something someone said the other week, which was like, gossip is only great if it's mega, mega massive scale or tiny, tiny, tiny scale. So it's either fascinating that this was the example they gave was like that, prince charles cheated on diana like mega massive front page news or that <laughs> the man in your office has been stealing the toner <laughs> and no one knows like that it's like you either go for like gossip on a huge scale or tiny tiny like scale and and and, yeah. and I, th I think with queer history we often get the big stuff we get section 28 and all yeah. of that but we don't get for example i'm looking at one of the pictures here from uh the instagram account which was um the members of the people's group uh yeah. little hampton meeting together and everyone it's just a bunch of 
a bunch of queer men all in just shorts. Maybe that's got something to do with why it's so joyous. But everyone's smiling and they're having a, an amazing day. And that was to do with the the people's group getting together, but it wasn't meant to be happening that day or something. Is that right? So the people's group was a Friday group, which if memory serves me, used to meet at Marchmont Street next to Gaze the Word. So again, yeah. that wonderful connection there. Um, it was a group of people of colour. Um, I didn't actually go to it. It was a little bit before my time. Yeah. But again, you know, and I think that's what's fascinating is when we talk about gays at work, right? Or if you look at Pride, the film, which is shot there, you'd never know that there was this small black group that took place and they all went down to Littlehampton in their short shorts. I mean, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, interesting. Adjacent histories taking place, but just the light yeah. wasn't shone. Gaze the Word being the bookshop, in case anyone doesn't know. Get down there. If you're ever buying a book, get it from there. Well, it's it's really exciting to sort of start to see it unfold. It feels like it was ready to happen. So I can't wait to hear more. And will, in tandem, the Instagram account um, continue to post pictures? Or is it now moving to the podcast? What's your thoughts? Well, you know, the, the, the account on Instagram relies purely on submissions from people. Yeah. And so the first kind of six months was a lot of work of contacting old friends and then contacting old friends to kind of give pictures. And that kind of dried up a little bit. So we are now, you know, still asking people. Um, I'm hoping in the next few months that, you know, we will get some more pictures to put back onto the site and kind of you know reignite it again but it really does depend on submissions Mm. but right now my focus is kind of getting the podcast out there and you know seeing how that goes in the world and then you know building on that brilliant well it's really exciting so you can get it now everybody what are you doing listening to this don't go uh it's not the only award-winning podcast that you've been involved with either you have another one remind me that one uh, it wasn't award winning, it was nominated, but it was, yeah, we, we Let's not get bogged best. down in the detail. In the detail, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Nominated for Best British Documentary of the Year podcast. Yeah, so that was uh, We Were Always Here, which is the story of that. Yeah, that was it. Amazing piece of work. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been lovely. Everybody go listen to Mark's podcast. Keep following everything that Mark's doing because it's always a win. Thank you so much, Chris. Fantastic. What a lovely chat. You can find the link to Black and Gay back in the day in the show notes and uh, their Instagram account and also their podcast feed because that's now available. The first one's available. I can't remember if the other ones are. You've got to go and investigate. You'll never regret it. Um, Next week, I'm chatting to amazing Instagram phenomenon, bisexual trailblazer Florence Given. I adore her. I love her books. So um, that's very exciting. Get in touch, listeners. It's at homo sapiens on instagram it's hello at homo sapiens podcast on the email and send us your comments your questions your agony uncles and all of the above and thank you so much for listening Ta-ra! small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. 
Only from Rustolium. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Powered by Spirit Studios.